Hello and welcome to another big fat portion of Making a Meal of It, which is the podcast from the Birmingham Food Council, the podcast where we explore how the food system works. This is in fact our second and we're recording it in the week the National Food Strategy was published in the UK. I'm Nick Booth and with me in the room are two people, David Roos, who's in charge of assuring the quality of the food bought by one of our key UK supermarkets, Aldi. Hello, David, and thank Hi, you Nick. for inviting us here. And Kate Cooper, say hello, Kate. Hello, Nick. Kate, as you're going to get to know, is the Executive Director of the Birmingham Food Council. Kate, what's on your mind this week at the moment? I think because it's the week the National Food Strategy um, was published a few days afterwards, um, the sheer range of people that are involved in getting food in, in, into people's mouths, you know, from truck drivers to analytical chemists to, I don't know, the navigator in charge of a super tanker that doesn't get stuck in the Suez Canal. And then all of that somehow or other gets put together in a way so that somebody like David in a supermarket can make quite sure that when I go into one of his stores, I can buy sufficient to be able to make, for example, something like, I don't know, hot buttered toast and raspberry jam and have a cup of tea when I get home. David, what's on your mind? Well, a few things. Food safety is never far from the front of my mind. Um, One of the areas that we're looking at is moving products from Europe into the UK from October and then into January, so getting ready for all of those changes. Um, There's also some issues relating to CO2, which impacts some of the shelf life of the products that we have on sale. And then in the background, there's work ongoing in terms of locust bean gum that's been contaminated with a chemical called ethylene oxide which is not suitable for human consumption so that's a ruling by EFSA and there's lots of food organizations across Europe that are taking products off sale because of that so just a few things. I was going to say so there's a lot on your mind yeah this is a complicated and a complex business yes it is okay Before we get into the detail of some of that or other other issues, I just want to do a tiny bit of uh, online housekeeping, I guess. Um, So you can find this and other podcasts we make at our website, birminghamfoodcouncil.org. We are at Birmingham Food Council on Twitter, which is actually at B-H-A-M Food Council on Twitter. And you can use whatever hashtag you fancy. We'll pop this on hashtag food safety and hashtag food security. And maybe, because we're really proud of Birmingham, we might pop it on the hashtag Brumfood as well. Right, David, tell me about Aldi. Where does Aldi, this might sound like an obvious question, but where does Aldi sit in the food chain? So we sit as a retailer in the food chain. So we are number five as the retailer within the the UK. So just behind the the big four and um, pushing up against Morrison's, I would say, um, trying to uh, grow our market share. So... We sit across the whole of the UK and um, including Scotland. We also have stores that I'm responsible for in Ireland. So one of the big retailers, our head office is based here in Atherston in the West Midlands. We buy food in from lots of different producers, um, bring it into our distribution centres and then from there distribute products in the right way to all of our stores uh, around the country. And you're buying food presumably from all over the world? Yes, we buy food from all over the world. A lot of our fresh food is actually made within the UK. Obviously, um, fresh fruit and vegetables outside of season will come from different countries. Europe, 
South America will give us uh, products like that. So yes, we buy food from around the world. And tell me what your job is and what that means. So my job is the uh, Quality Assurance Director for the UK and Ireland. So what I'm responsible for is making sure that everything goes, that goes on our shelves is safe and legal and um, fit for use. So we cover, my responsibility covers everything food related, but also all of the health and beauty products and all of the non-food products that we put on sale. So sort of anything that a human being is going to put in them or on them? Yes, correct. Exactly that, in them or on them. That sounds like that sounds like a bonkers level of responsibility. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Well, let's um, let in that case, let's get down to risk. So, well, maybe we can also talk about some of the things that we put on our skin as opposed to just in our mouth. But yeah. I, I, we're the food council, so we're particularly interested in food. Talk me through how food gets into Aldi supermarkets, and what are the risks in that part of the process of it, of it getting to you? Sure. Um, before a product ever hits the shelf, we go through a full process to manage and understand the risk for the supplier. And it all depends on the type of product that we are bringing into the, the company, but it all starts way before then. So the buying team will have a look what's in the market. They will identify benchmarks or um, areas where they think there's a gap for Aldi to sell products and they will bring that into our sampling kitchen they will sample that they will brief suppliers um, about the product that they want and they'll bring those in and test those products against the benchmark they've identified and is that a suitable um, match for the benchmark so is it something that we would put our name to and the buying team decide on that and then we take over and um, we follow a full process where if it's a new supplier site, we would go and audit that supplier site to make sure they have the right food safety controls in place. If we find anything, the product won't go forward. Um, the supplier will need to make necessary corrective actions before we go back in. We also do a full um, specification. So as the food business owner, we complete or ask the supplier to complete the specification. And then we use third-party technical service providers to check everything within the certification to make sure that it is correct and valid and the product is safe to go on sale. That could be things like validating the shelf life, uh, the cooking instructions, uh, what claims we want to make. If we want to put uh, palm oil in, is it RSPO certified palm oil? So we check everything relating to that product. And from that, we will... Uh, generate thing called the pack copy and that goes onto our artwork so we work them with the artwork agencies to finalize the packaging and that will get signed off and once that's done then the supplier can start manufacturing the product and really start shipping it into the stores so Christmas is done really early in the year and Easter's done at the back end of the year so we always work in six to nine months in advance of putting products on sale. So that is a very detailed process you've described to manage risk yeah manage and mitigate risk but also understand the the detail of the product to make sure that the products are um, safe and legal and also very importantly that the organizations we're working with are able to produce that food in a safe and legal manner what sort of risks are you having to manage out of the process um lots of um, different risks that we have some of them is just base quality so can the supplier make that product at the right standard consistently is a really important one for customers because you don't want to buy one standard of quality one week and have something completely different the next week. 
we also have to have a look at the manufacturing processes. So are they properly controlled? Are they cleaned properly? Are the lines cleaned properly? Um, are there appropriate measures taken from an allergen perspective? Um, and then how that product is, is manufactured, is it done in the right way? So are people using the right product for the right packaging? So you're not mixing it up because that's where you get allergen recalls where people put, use the wrong packaging for products. Is the date code correct? Is the shelf life correct? Are there any bugs that will grow in that product over the shelf life of the product? And is that managed? Um, are there sufficient controls within the manufacturing process or how it's packaged to prevent those bugs from growing? So could we take an example like a simple thing like a cauliflower? So yep. what to, to, talk talk me so I, I guess there's a couple of things I'm interested in. There's the risks that you need to think about. Yes. For your business and us as your customers. Yeah. And then there's another set of risks that the grower is also thinking about. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So the, if you take a cauliflower, it's a, you would think it's a simple product, um, but there's a lot that goes around a cauliflower. So you'd have to think of where that cauliflower is grown. Um, also, what is in the soil. Um, so what you don't want is lots of um, muck being spread on the fields that have got um, bacteria. So this is quite common where people pick up um, disease from um, fresh fruits or vegetables for not, um, by not washing them. And you can have salmonella in the fields that then get onto the product. Also, you can have birds dropping things over <laughs> uh, onto the product. So you've got to think about all of those uh, factors and where the product is being sourced from as well. Then you need to think about fertilizer and also any sort of uh, plant protection products or pesticides, herbicides that are applied to the product. And it can't exceed um, the MRLs. And if it does, MRLs? Uh, maximum residue levels. Right. And that is um, where chemicals, they can't go, there's prescribed levels that they can't go over. And if it exceeds an MRL, then that is unsafe for, for people to eat. So you have to think about all of these areas and what's happening. Equally, cauliflower is quite simple. They'll pick it in the field and bag it up in the field and ship it through to the stores. But what's that shipping look like? And is that being conducted correctly? So cauliflower is quite, quite easy. But um, if you think about just taking plastic off the outside of the cauliflower, you do that and you impact the shelf life of the product. So while plastic is demonized, there are some good uses for it because it extends the shelf life of the cauliflower. So where is all of this happening? We're, we're here in Atherston. Uh, when we arrived, we parked in the car park, but there are rows and rows and rows of Aldi-branded lorries here. Yeah. What's, is, is there food coming here and then going out from here? Yes. So food will um, come from all of the manufacturers, and um, it will either go into one of our platforms, which is a hub that we use where... Um, goods are brought in, they're consolidated, and then we can pick what we need for the, um, the distribution centers. So that product will come in on vehicles, um, either directly or from a hub, be delivered into the distribution center, and um, then that gets picked and sent out to stores on a daily or bi-daily basis to, to stores. And do you also have to worry about risks to do with transport to what's happening yes. in the lorry and right yeah, okay absolutely so if i go from coming in to going out you um will be bringing in chilled vehicles so for products that are chilled you need to make sure that they are chilled correctly that nothing's happened in the um, supply chain while it's been delivered uh, that someone hasn't turned off the chiller or forgotten to switch it on so you check that that product coming in is of the right temperature i'll use chilled because this this is probably our biggest risk area 
Um, then you would bring it into the site and make sure that it was correct, um, had all the right date codes and everything on, and then you'd put it into the um, chill area where that would get picked. And that would be consolidated, and then that load would then be loaded up onto a vehicle um, to be taken to store. So again, you can split the vehicle and have a chilled area and an ambient area, but you need to make sure that the chilled area is operating correctly or frozen and, and chilled area and then you would take that to store. But you have to make sure that when you're delivering, that temperature is managed through the whole supply chain. So a vehicle could drop at two or three stores um, and the temperature needs to be managed across all of those different areas. And then when they get to store, they need to take that product and put it in the right areas as soon as it gets there. Because one of the things you want to do uh, is maintain the chill chain. I'm getting lost in the detail, but not in a bad way, because it is astonishing the level of detail of the things you have to worry about. But Kate, what are you, what's on your mind? What are you thinking of listening to this? Um, the sheer number of people involved, I think, and the very different skill sets of the individuals who are involved. And in effect, you are, David, you're actually having to coordinate an enormous range of people with a variety of skills and all of it. Somehow or other, you've got to keep tabs on all of it. And some of that keeping on tabs is presumably done by things like barcodes, etc. So but at the same time, you've got to check it all. It, it is. Um, fortunately, I don't have to do all of that. Uh, there are standards that have been set within. So we have inbound standards that we need the suppliers to be meeting when those products are delivered. Equally, there's processes and systems within our distribution centers that the uh, teams need to work towards and they're very um, skilled in managing that mm. and equally the drivers know what they have to do when they're delivering into stores so um, we have a very simple model but part of that simple model is making sure that people comply with the base requirements from a food safety perspective. Mm. But even thinking about something like that lorry with two chilled with a chilled and an ambient area it's got three drops to do even the business of how do we get the right quantity of food to the right place in the right way. Oh, yes. I mean, it's brilliant that there are computers to help you make solve these problems, but these are not trivial problems, are they? No, they're not. And when you're picking for a store, you're picking lots of different uh, products onto a pallet. So once you get down to that pallet level, it is quite complicated. And then you get it to the store side and they have to unpick the pallets and put everything on the shelves. So um, there's a necessary level of uh, detail and complexity just by working all of the pallets efficiently and effectively in the stores. So do you monitor through processes or do you have bits of kit or software or you know bit sensors that are monitoring as well? Um, there's both so there's process that drives a lot of the um, things that we do but then equally when things arrive in on site for a temperature check that will be checked if it's produce there's people that will go out and they'll use um, uh, software solution that we have to make sure that that produce meets the right standard uh, for the um, delivery. If not, we'll reject it. If it passes, it will go into stores. So there are controls that we have all the way through the, the process. And again, at the store level, they have a certain amount of time that they need to work a pallet to get that on the shelf. And we don't want it standing around on the floor. And can I just check something there? What pressures are you under? I'm thinking that you do all of this because it is right for your customers, it is right for your brand, it's right for your reputation. But presumably, the law has an opinion about what you're doing to us as well. Yes. So um, you'll have um, trading standards officers, environmental health officers going into stores and having a look at what, what we do. 
Um, but we have a relationship with the primary authority and we work very closely with them in terms of anything that we're doing, implementing or changes that we're making. But um, that's a really good relationship to have with a primary authority who's kind of a key um, regulatory contact point and they would be an interface between us and other regulatory authorities around the country but also between us and the Food Standards Agency for example. When you say primary authority do you mean like Birmingham City Council or yes. the, the, the main the main responsible body in that place? Yes. Yes. Are they on your back or are you collaborating? Or? No it's a collaborative um, relationship that we have with the primary authority. They would if there's any issues that are highlighted they would highlight them to us. We would investigate them and provide feedback to them on the outcomes from those investigations. So it is a collaborative approach. You have to work with your regulator. Um, it doesn't help. Well, there's no benefit to be gained by working against your regulator because, as you said, Nick, we, we want to be uh, delivering something that is great quality for our customers but also of benefit to protect the brand. Mm. Anything else on, on at the moment, Kate? Anything you want to ask? I, I think just to have an indication of kind of the scale of the operation, I suppose, even if, even if it's something as simple, well, how many cauliflowers do you have to process? Thousands of cauliflowers we would process. Um, you know, the volumes going into um, 800 stores are vast uh, yes. that we bring in, and um, stores are busy, so you're turning over um, product um, once or twice a day. So I would say you would you could potentially be having 20 pallets of product being delivered into a store twice a day. Um, and worked oh. onto the shelves. So it, it's a lot of volume that you go through. So cauliflowers would be in the millions, you know, cucumbers as well. It, it is a high volume um, that we sell through the business. Mm. Do you find that on a, I mean, I guess the answer to this should be no, but on a daily or a weekly basis, you have something that feels like a, a mini crisis, that there's a big issue with a particular flow of supply or? Um, Yes, you could have um, different issues that arise depending on what's happened. So a supplier could um, phone up and say, you know, there's an error on this um, date coding on the on the packaging. Please, can you not put it on sale? So we would then react to that or um, we would do sampling and see that there's a quality issue with the product and we're not happy with that. So we wouldn't want it to be on sale anymore so we could take it off sale um, or customer could phone and complain about something and we would do an investigation and try and understand what the root cause was if there's an issue and then investigate that further so it's a what we do is dynamic all the time so you need to set the standards and that's why we do so much work up front but as you're going through your your day-to-day -day, I think you have to recognize that there will be issues within the manufacturing base um, like the locust bean gum uh, with ethylene oxide um, that's a great example where that is an issue that's um, across all of the retail base, you know, in in Europe, um, you know, the French authorities have taken a lot of products off sale uh, in the last month. So that that's just a contamination of um, the locust bean gum, which goes into ice cream. It's a thickener um, that is then causing an issue where you have to react. And we don't know about that. And potentially the manufacturer of the product didn't know about it as well, because it's further down in the supply chain. And also, that means you need to know where that appears in all of your products. Yes. You need to have a... You, you, so you need to be able to trace... Traceability. Recipes yeah. and actual product? Yes. Both. So, so traceability is a key element for any food um, manufacturer, right the way back down to, you know, if you look at your cauliflower, you would need to know 
and um, we do, which field it came from. So where, where it comes from, who's consolidated that, is there pack house involved right the way through to the shelf and then where, where that's gone. Um, because if there are issues, the Food Standards Agency would be asking you where you've um, sourced that product from. So traceability is absolutely a key. And the locust bean gum, you're absolutely right. You'd need to know uh, what products gone on sale, so what batches there are of that, um, where it was made, when it was made, and where that locust bean gum was used. So it's not just traceability for us. So legally, we one up, one down. But you want your supplier to have that, and you want your supplier supplier to have that. So you can drill quickly right the way through to find out where there, where there are any issues. What I'm hearing here is something so detailed, so many layers of fine activity going on, but also there's big stuff happening, like people are ploughing fields and doing things on a huge scale as well. I have no idea why this system works. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the system works because each person within the supply chain having worked in manufacturing previously for 20 odd years the system there works in the same way where you have to make sure that what you're doing is controlled and that you manage in your production lines you manage in your traceability and you manage in your quality and if you're doing your piece of the supply chain and you're you're checking what's coming into you from your raw material suppliers then you can make it work it's where there's a break in that supply chain and if someone doesn't know what material was used in what batch of product, then that's a problem. And then that creates a, a broader problem because if you can't scope out what the issue is, then you have to go wider and wider and wider. And that's when you get to crisis point and you, you don't understand what's happening with your products. Then you're taking lots of product off sale. So actually the detail is why it works. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 it, and if you weren't working at that very fine level, as you say, you'd end up with lots of much bigger than necessary Correct. crises. Yeah, because if, even if you look at crops, you know, there's uh, agronomists that are understanding what needs to be put onto that crop, you know, how much can be put onto the crop, the uh, harvest intervals from when you've applied that to when you can harvest it. There's people all the way through the supply chain with massive amounts of knowledge that they bring to bear in their specific areas. And that's how the whole thing holds together. And I guess I'm thinking as somebody who's not that involved in the food industry that I, I think of food as agriculture. I think of it as something being attractive. I think of the countryside. And actually you're describing here an engineering problem that's being solved almost. Yes. Uh, you've, you've got to look at it. You know, you would look at the countryside, but... You know, even if you take um, chickens, you know, there's a lot that you would do with chickens just in terms of how they grow and, and all of the um, agronomy that goes into that, how they managed, how they then brought from the, the sheds um, to the, the processing facility, how they managed there in, you know, a humane way and in line with all the animal welfare requirements, especially with the really hot weather we've been having. Um, and then, you know, you then have, you take those birds and then you processing them and you're doing different things with them you're making a value-added product you're doing a whole bird you're doing portions you're doing chicken breasts all of that comes right the way from the farm through a factory and then onto our our shop our floor there's something uh, kate you were telling me that so you david and um parveen who was in our first podcast you were at a birmingham food council discussion conversation and you sort of both had a sense that people do not understand this system yeah yeah, 
absolutely you know people would go into a store and see what is on the shelf but people don't nowadays know where their food comes from um and you know you you see a lot of different people having different opinions and i'm not going to go into that but you know if you're talking about a natural product you know a piece of protein is a natural product um but it comes from a chicken and people i think have dissociated themselves from the piece of protein and the chicken that is grown and and then harvested and processed on an industrial scale to allow them to go into the store and pick that piece of uh, chicken breast up for their dinner that night and i guess it, i don't know if it is forgivable or not that we as consumers are getting disassociated and don't understand the system but do you think the policymakers understand it do you think that lawmakers understand it um I think some people do, um, but where you look at people making sweeping statements about, you know, health and all of this, um, and targeting certain areas, you've got to have a look at a balanced diet, and you've got to have a look at what you're eating. But people need to get back in touch with their food. Really, I, I think that's really important. You know, you pick up carrots, and you know, people just expect carrots to be there, or they expect avocados to be on the shelf, but. You don't understand the huge process that goes into getting that carrot from the field onto the shelf, or the avocado from South Africa or wherever it's coming from onto the shelf for you. Um, and I think that that's probably one one of the biggest challenges. You know, strawberries that are available all year round is that really something that we should be doing? So if you're thinking more ecologically friendly, should we just eat strawberries seasonally and not have strawberries from Egypt or Morocco available in? December for your Christmas uh, dessert and those are things where I think people need to shift their mindset maybe and think differently about the food that they get and and this is interesting so Parveen again talked about the moral side of things didn't he? he talked about this being a moral problem and a and a human problem I think it is I I, I think that there are two things one is that people that a modern-day farming is actually a fair mystery, but they have no comprehension, or very few people have any comprehension of what happens between the farm gate and the supermarket shelf, which is, mm. you know, how it is. I think the other thing is I think it's very easy to say things like we must eat seasonally and things like that. Now, I'm old enough to have eaten seasonal food in England in the 1950s, because I had to. And I have to say, it's a lot of manky apples and cabbage. <laughs> it's, not, it's not good. It's not good. So um, I, I think there are, there are undoubtedly huge issues, but there are, the answers aren't simple. No. Um, and I think, well, some answers are simple, but most of the answers aren't. And I, I always think of Jay Rayner's book, um, the subtitle of which is Why Nearly Everything You think about food is wrong or something i mean most things that most people believe about the food system are just wrong they're not how it Mm. is and it's because of this enormous attention to detail that somehow or other comes out so that we can yeah eat yeah absolutely i one thing i do think is i think food science and food technology is underrated you know food technology not being taught in schools um that that's where people uh, understand food but also fall in love with food you know it, it is a science it is a scientific endeavor to um, you know have all of the food that we have and there's huge amounts of people doing research and development and it's not always the the big bad people that are trying to make you know add more salt or sugar to make things appeal to you they also looking at how they can make products healthier um, and also 
alongside that, have a good shelf life. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's a balance that you have to strike. Mm. And it, just when you said earlier about, uh, you know, should we be able to eat strawberries all year round? It does feel like there's, I mean, I can only think of two of you, but there's a tension between the way we as individuals feel about the way things should be and the way in which the system functions to make them because actually one of the things that supermarkets have done for us is is force this process of stretching access to strawberries yeah uh, yeah yeah ab- absolutely you know um, you have access to strawberries you have access to um, asparagus all year round but then you have your British asparagus season so you know we I think retail has brought a lot of the the products to you on on you know around the the calendar rather than just having it as you said Kate just on a seasonal um, <laughs> cycle with manky apples but yeah and, and but it feels like it's sort of a, a technological triumph a triumph of process and ambition but it's not but it doesn't feel right uh, absolutely well if, if you're looking at the the situation we're in you're talking about you know becoming carbon neutral and all of that but you're still exporting huge amounts of produce uh, around the world that's where that tension comes in um, to say how how do you do it in a better way so the other question that we asked Parveen and we want to ask people is when when the food leaves you and I don't mean leaves this distribution center but leaves your supermarket yeah is there have you got any worries about that are you yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> my guess is that they're quite tell, tell us about them. well I think um, when when food leaves us you, you always think about how that, that product is being handled. Um, you know, if it's a chilled product, is someone taking it home and putting it straight in the freezer or they're going and doing three or four other uh, small trips and it's in a hot car. And, um, you know, if a chilled product is out of the chilled chain, that will allow um, bacteria and organisms to grow and um, food spoilage organisms to grow so it can spoil the food. Um, so so that's, that's one of the things. Um, people mixing products so um you know uh, where you can get i'm going to say chicken juices you don't get chicken juices because we've we've got good bags but where you can have juices of of some products um you know cross contaminating into fresh produce that's in the same bag um and then i think for me one one of the things that we've um identified and we we always do within our products that need cooking is making sure that cooking instructions are followed um but uh where you look at people and they don't follow cooking instructions and then they get sick that is really one of the things that that concerns me is you know people should read cooking instructions and make sure they're following them correctly um to a point where a few years ago we put um one temperature for all of our christmas party food on the product so there would be different times but people weren't then trying to manipulate different temperatures and i think that's pretty standard within the party food ranges now but that that is really key the other one is you know someone will take home a um, a chicken breast and we know that you know there, there may be some bugs on it and you need people to cook it properly but equally there was a big piece on campylobacter which was about do not wash your chicken and people splashing bugs and cross-contaminating their work surfaces so there is a lot of responsibility for people when they get food home to make sure that they are cooking it properly, handling it properly, and also trying to, this is a, a challenging one, understand the difference between a best before date and a use by date. So best before just means that the product won't be at its best at that date, but you can safely consume it afterwards. Um, but a use by date means that that product is 
probably not safe for you to eat after the date that they show and that's because of um, bacteria or organisms or spoilage or something that can happen up to that point and that's why a use by date is a, a line in the sand that you you shouldn't go past that use by date. All of this is outside of your control are yes. you trying to figure out how to manage our behavior? Um, there's a lot of discussion that happens within the retail industry with the retail organizations, the food standards agencies. So um, I know the food standards agency puts out a lot of information around, you know, um, barbecue um, season and making sure that you're cooking your products correctly um, on the barbecue, not burning them and having them raw on the inside because we know that's where uh, there's an increase in, in issues. Um, but yes, we also try manage some things where um, you can move from a flash fried product to a fully cooked product, so you remove the risk from the customer not cooking that product correctly. Um, again, it comes down to what we do with the cooking instructions. I would guarantee you most people listening to this wouldn't really look at cooking instructions for a piece of steak or a chicken. We rip the packet open and get on, do what we think we... And, and that, that's the piece is where we, we put it on there and we do the, show, um, the cooking validation... And then it's about making sure that people stick to that. And we've, we've heard from some research that the Food Standards Agency did where people don't generally cook um, chicken nuggets and things like that to the right um, temperature because they're mixing it with chips or they're putting it in the microwave um, and thinking that a couple of minutes in the microwave is going to cook the product through, which is not. It looks flash fried on the outside, so it looks cooked, um, but it's not on the inside. And that's where you, you still drive um, issues with with people getting ill from um, eating underprepared food I think food safety assurance integrity is a huge area and and I'm not talking about a supermarket like Aldi I'm sure you spend a lot of time and money on those kind of issues because the big supermarket brands do but generally there isn't enough investment in this country um, at a local authority level at a primary authority level at laboratory level, at analyst level, there just isn't enough infrastructure in place. It's had money taken away from it. And I think that's a public good, um, which needs substantially more public investment than it has. And do you feel that some of the response, more of the responsibility has been shifted to you from the, from the local authorities? Um, I, I wouldn't say that it's shifted to us. I I would say that we've taken responsibility to make sure that the products we put on sale are safe and legal. And that's about making sure that our customers can buy products. And this isn't just Aldi, this is any retailer can buy products um, knowing that they are safe to consume. And of course, that's right. But it, but there's there's we don't ha- it, what Kate seems to be suggesting is it almost solely rests and maybe it should do it almost solely rests on the producers and the supply chain, it, not on the authorities. Yeah, the, there's a piece that the Food Standards Agency is looking at with the bigger retailers about achieving uh, business compliance, and it is about them understanding what um, systems and procedures we have in place to assure that food is safe um, so they can focus on the other areas of the market where there's probably more um, underhanded dealings and, and issues. So, I th- And I think that is a, a smart way of working because all of the retailers as I've described, you know, make sure that products are safe and legal to go on sale because we take our responsibilities absolutely seriously. Um, so, yeah, go and have a look at other people that are, are cutting corners or, you know, buying um, products out of the back of a white van. That's where 
I think the, the broader public health risk lies. Yeah. And obviously, if it goes wrong for you, you're going to end up on the front page of the Daily Express. Correct. And you don't want that to happen. Exactly right. Okay. A couple of questions. First one is, what did you learn from the pandemic? Um, <laughs> I think from the pandemic uh, overall is the food supply chain is resilient. Um, but equally, the food supply chain in certain areas, so chilled food manufacturing, uh, there have been issues. But again, you the, the teams that work within manufacturing have done a huge amount of work and have continued to do a huge amount of work to enable their businesses to operate. So I think um, from the pandemic, the I, I would actually take away that the food supply chain is actually quite robust. Um, did it have to do a lot of work to get to that point absolutely but it it was resilient to the shocks that came with the with the pandemic especially back at the start of the pandemic with panic buying and being able to supply um, food to people do you feel more robust now are there things that have shifted or changed that you can see are a good thing i i think over the over time things have changed yes people are are more robust um, thinking more about uh, different types of risks that could could impact them, whereas probably before the pandemic you would you would just deal with an issue as it came up. So, food organisations have become more resilient and know how to manage issues. So, um, yeah, that that's what I would say is is people are more resilient in in the whole process. And did you ever have evenings where you were thinking, are we actually going to be able to feed people? No. No. So um, that that wasn't wasn't an issue at all. I think the issue was with um, with people panic buying and um, going and being hungry hippos and hoarding stuff. That that was the the bigger issue, where there was sufficient food for people. It was just people, I don't know, buying a year's supply worth of of pasta and things, um, and and where people were doing the same with uh, chilled products or fruit and veg, what did they do with that? And I think my concern more outside of that is how much food waste did we generate from people being the hungry hippos and going and buying everything in, um, but not having anywhere appropriate to store it, and then it ending up in the bin. So that, that, that was a, probably a bigger cause of concern for me. So just the last thing really is what, and this is for both of you, um, Kate, maybe you first from this conversation, what do you think it is that people aren't getting about the food system that they really need to get their head around? I'm, I'm thinking in terms of policymakers, not individuals. I think individuals are acutely aware of this. But at the same time, traditionally, when we've thought about hunger, it's about calories because there have been times when there haven't been enough calories, enough grain to go round in our history. But actually, in, in, in this country now, it's not a calorie famine we have, it's a nutrient famine. And for, I agree with you, David, I think the, the, the way the food retail system responded to the pandemic was both astonishing and brilliant. But still, millions of people were excluded from that because they can't afford it. Mm. So, and if you can't afford um, nutrient-dense foods because it's more, inevitably more expensive, then you don't get them. So there's a nutrient famine for economic reasons. And also I suspect too that it's actually going to be quite hard for the UK in the future with climate change and everything else 
to be able to provide sufficient fresh produce. I hope I'm wrong, David. Sufficient fresh produce for everybody in the country. David? Um, well, I think policymakers need to have a look at how they um, extend and invest in things like vertical gardening and, and enabling us to become more um, sustainable from growing food here through different seasons. Um, that That's one thing for me. But I suppose the other side, I would say, is where you always see in the newspaper um, issues around food fraud or food adulteration. Mm. And that is, you know, it, it's a good headline to sell. But from working in the industry for so many years and at different areas in manufacturing and in retail, um, I would just say that, you know, they, they, they minor issues um, that occur and that's where people have been unscrupulous. But, you know, the food you generally buy on your shelf is safe and legal because we put so many checks and controls across the industry into this. Um, and that's why, you know, we don't have more issues like that. So I, I would actually like the scaremongers to to stop publishing um, things like that and focus on the, the bigger issues, which is where's our food going to come from in 20 or 30 years time, um, because that that will, you know, stop that happening. Okay, I can see another podcast called Where Is Our Food Going to Come From in 20 or 30 Years Time. Indeed, <laughs> yes. Um, you were an engineer then first. Manufacturing engineer? Um, no, no, I'm I'm a food technologist by training. So I worked in in operations in um, an operational environment, product development, and then supplier quality management. How come you became a food technology or food? How how did you get involved in the food? Um, how it's really simple um, and straightforward. I was always intrigued when I looked at a candy bar or bread or whatever it was. Uh, what the ingredients were and I was always intrigued about how all of that got put together to make a food product um, and I went from there and, and got into food technology and then into actually defining the products and putting all of the ingredients together to make the, the products that um, were sold to consumers. And do you still get a buzz out of quite how these products are Oh absolutely, yeah absolutely, especially the more complicated products yeah but it, it is good fun. Well, David, thank you so much for inviting us here. I've had my eye open just just looking at the distribution centre, but also just listening to the detail. Kate, of course, always thank you. You can find much more thinking about food and food security and what it takes to feed a city. A lot of it processed through the mind and the keyboard of Kate Cooper at birminghamfoodcouncil.org, which is the website. Uh, we are at Beham Food Council on Twitter. And thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.